Welcome to First Baptist Church of Terrytown, sharing God's love and hope around the world. Our prayer is that your life is transformed as you hear the Word of God preached today. I have a colleague, another pastor, and we're sitting in this big pastor's group like we often do, which are always fun experiences, right? It's just I've been doing this for a long time. You're never quite sure what's going to happen. But we're talking about all sorts of things, kind of doing a devotional. And one of the pastors, who who is not like just a young guy, this is a seasoned pastor, the pastor said, I am so glad that I decided not to bring children into this dark world. Whoa. And so we were talking about it. He was talking about all the difficulties and all the hardships that we're facing, the war and the finances and, and hatreds that people have for each other and divisions. And he said, you know, I made my wife and I, we made a decision a long time ago. And as I'm just looking at things, I'm glad I didn't bring people or bring children into this world. Wow. That's how dark things are. There's so much conflict inside, outside. And he said, it's not worth it. It's not worth bringing children into the world. And the rest of us who had kids were like, what are you saying about our kids? What about their future? I don't know. The hopelessness that he was experiencing looking around is often the hopelessness that we face, both the interior hopelessness and, and the exterior hopelessness. We have so much conflict in this world. We have so much conflict in our personal lives. You turn on the news. There is so much conflict. It is overwhelming. It leads to a sense of hopelessness. I was reading in a psychological journal recently, and uh, some psychologists posit that there isn't just one kind of hopelessness, that there are nine. Oh, isn't that even more str- I don't know. That doesn't seem to help the, the situation. It makes it more stressful. And let me, let me make it worse. Let me actually share with you what those nine are. There's alienation, right? So your own people reject you, and you, they, they, don't have, uh, they don't want to do anything with you. Uh, forsakenness, your people, they've forgotten about you. So it's not just that they've, they've rejected you, now they've forgotten you. Lack of inspiration, you don't have the energy, you don't have the drive, you don't have the will to do anything. Powerlessness, you feel hopeless and helpless with your situation, whether it's finances, whether it's your job, you just can't do it. Oppression, this is talking on the macro level, right? You feel like the governments, the organizations, the, the families, everyone who has power is out to get you or is preventing you from getting ahead, which is a very real thing to feel. Limitedness. So you say, I have hopes, dreams, and desires, and I can't fulfill any of them because of my own limitations. And so I feel hopeless. I don't have enough education. I don't have enough skill. I don't have enough courage. I can't do what I need to do. Helplessness. You're incapable of getting out of the situation that you're in. Captivity. You feel trapped. You feel trapped in your job. You feel trapped in your family. You feel trapped in your marriage. You feel trapped in a relationship. Can't get out. Just hopeless. And doom. You just feel like it's all going to end. I don't know if you see yourself up there, but I, I see myself in a few of those in my darkest places. What happens after we've endured all of this conflict that we see in the world around us, this conflict, the, the, the spiritual conflict that we have and the physical conflict around us. What happens after all of this? Does it all just end in misery? Because, oh my goodness, it seems that way. I was at a wedding just, uh, just a couple days ago, and I was talking to family members, and you know, you get to talking about all sorts of stuff as the, the party goes on, and, and oh my goodness, a number of them, just, it all ends in misery. 
What happens after all of the conflict that we see, all the conflict in your life, all the conflict in the world around us? We're going to conclude Daniel chapter 10. I'm going to have to summarize a little bit so we can actually make our way through the entire text. But I encourage you to go back and read some of it. But Daniel, he gets one final vision. Daniel chapter 10, verse 1. In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a word was revealed to Daniel, who was named Belteshazzar. And the word was true, and it was a great conflict. And he understood the word and had understanding of the vision. In those days, I, Daniel, was mourning for three weeks. I ate no delicacies, no meat or wine entered my mouth, nor did I anoint myself at all for the full three weeks. On the 24th day of the first month, as I was standing on the bank of the great river, that is the Tigris, I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, a man clothed in linen with a belt of fine gold from Uphaz around his waist. His body was like barrel, his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and the sound of his words like the sound of a multitude. And I, Daniel, alone saw the vision, for the men who were with me did not see the vision, but a great trembling fell upon them, and they fled to hide themselves. So I was left alone and saw this great vision, and no strength was left in me. My radiant appearance was fearfully changed, and I retained no strength. Then I heard the sound of his words, and as I heard the sound of his words, I fell on my face in a deep sleep with my face to the ground. So here's Daniel, and again, he's an old man at this point. He's probably somewhere in his 80s. We saw last week he had been praying that God would restore Israel, take them out of exile from Babylon, and allow them to go back to Jerusalem, the holy city. God sent Gabriel to tell him, yes, you will. And now, it's a few years later, it hasn't happened yet, and so Daniel is praying and fasting, and he's eating basic food, right? But he says he's not eating delicacies, he's not eating meat, he's, uh, he's not drinking wine, he's just eating the most basic foods he can as he's praying for these three weeks. And while he's praying, he's apparently on some sort of diplomatic mission, because he's still connected to the king's court. As he's on this diplomatic mission, all of a sudden, above the river Tigris, he sees this horrifying vision of this, this, this holy one, this anointed one. And it says his face is like lightning. And it is so terrifying that Daniel falls over down like a dead man. Now, it's not just that Daniel falls over. He's the only one who sees this vision. But the people who are around him, even though they don't see this vision of this man hovering over the face of the water, they can sense his presence, and they are terrified, and they run. Daniel falls over dead. There is some debate theologically about who this is, but it's very evident. When you take in the entirety of the Bible, Old Testament, New Testament, this is Jesus hovering over the face of the water. This is God Almighty hovering over the waters. In Genesis, you see God as he made the heavens and the earth. The Spirit of God was hovering, some translations say, brooding, others' translations say, not brooding like but brooding like a mother hen broods over her eggs or her chicks, um, brooding over the face of the waters. This, this is God. This is the anointed one. This is the coming Messiah appearing to Daniel, hovering over the face of the water, and it terrifies him so that he falls over dead. Not only does it terrify him, but the ones who are present, even though they don't see the vision, the presence of Jesus scares them. Now, I know some of you are looking at this going like, wait a minute, you know, but Jesus, you know, he's like, 
He's friendly. <laughs> like, he's the lamb. We saw just a few weeks ago in one of the sermons. He's the one who said, let the little children come to me. And he's hugging the kids. Right? That's Jesus. He's the lamb. Yes, Jesus is the lamb of God, but he's also the lion of Judah. He is strong. And in his power, even a glimpse of his power, this isn't even a vision of his full power, a glimpse of his power is terrifying. I remember a number of years ago, when I was eight years old, my dad and I, we went up to the Adirondacks and we, uh, we went on a father-son camping trip. And, uh, and it was getting dark and we were supposed to go to some, I don't know, rodeo or something up the other way. And we realized, oh, we forgot our flashlight. It's going to be dark by the time it's over. We got to get back the flashlight. And I said, oh, I'll go get it. I'll go get it, right? I'd, we'd been there a few days. I had a lay of the land. And we were in cabin eight. I don't remember why I remember that so explicitly. So we were in cabin eight. So I said, okay, I'm going to go. I'll go get the flashlight. Just wait here. And he's like, okay. So I go, and I'm like going around, and, and it's one of those windy paths, and I'm like, doo, 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 and I'm running, and then all of a sudden, I turn around a blind curve and poof, run right into the backside of a bear. And I'm like, eight years old. I have no clue how big this thing was, but I was eight, so it was like gigantic, right? I don't even think it noticed me. It was just, poof, right? And I ran. I was terrified. It was scary, and I ran, I ran as fast as I could until I saw my dad, and then I broke down. <laughs> What's going on? What's happening, right? We didn't go to the thing with the flashlight. <laughs> wow, bears are terrifying, especially if you're a little kid. Lions are terrifying. Jesus here, he's the lion of Judah. Jesus here, yes, he is the lamb, and he is gentle meek, but oh my goodness, he is also the lion and has all the power and authority in the world. And he's terrifying. So terrifying, Daniel drops over like a dead man. Verse 10. And behold, a hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. And he said to me, so this is a different person. This is a different individual. So the Messiah, the anointed one. He is the second person of the Trinity. He is hovering over the face of the water, terrifying. And a hand comes and touches him and set my, me trembling on my hands and knees. So it, this hand touches him, ministers to him, but, but he, he can just barely get up. He's trembling on his hands and knees. He's not just lying down dead anymore, but that's as far as he can go. Verse 11, and he said to me, O Daniel, man greatly loved, understand the words that I speak to you and stand upright. For now I have been sent to you and when he had spoken this word to me, I stood up trembling. And then he said to me, Fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humble yourself before your God, your words had been heard, and I have come because of your words. The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me twenty-one days, but Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I was left there with the kings of Persia and came to make you understand what is to happen to your people in the latter days. For the vision is for days yet to come. When he had spoken to me according to these words, I turned my face toward the ground and was mute. And behold, one in the likeness of the children of man touched my lips. Then I opened my mouth and spoke. I said to him who stood before me, O oh my Lord, by reason of the visions of pains have come upon me, and I retain no strength. How can my Lord's servant talk with my Lord? For now no strength remains in me, and no breath is left in me. And again, one having the appearance of a man touched me and strengthened me. And he said, O man greatly loved, fear not. Peace be with you. Be strong and of good courage. And as he spoke to me, I was strengthened and said, Let my Lord speak, for you have strengthened me. 
Then he said, do you know why I have come to you? But now I will return to fight against the prince of Persia. And when I go out, behold, the prince of Greece will come. But I will tell you what is inscribed in the book of truth. There is none who contends by my side except against these, except Michael, your prince. Okay, so what's happening here is Daniel, he's like a dead man on the ground. And then one with the appearance of a son of, uh, of, of, of a child of man. So it's an angel. We don't know what angel it is. My guess it's Gabriel because he's been showing up all throughout this book. So an angel appears, but he doesn't appear in like any kind of glory. There's no lights. He's not scaring him. He just looks like an ordinary man because Daniel is terrified of seeing Christ. And he is, he is face down like a dead man. And so he touches him. And he regains his strength. And this angel three times supernaturally ministers to Daniel to get him back on his feet, right? At first he touches him and he's on his hands and knees trembling. And then he touches him again and he's able to stand, but he still can't talk because he's so scared and terrified to be in the, the, the powerful presence of Jesus, the second person of the Trinity. And then he touches him again. And finally, after three times of ministering him, Daniel finally has his strength back. And the angel tells him, from the second you started praying, I was sent to bring you a message. But I was prevented from bringing that message by the kings of Persia. So there's some supernatural thing going on. The angel's coming, and then the kings of Persia, this is a supernatural reference. So, so these de- de- demonic forces that uh, represent Persia and that empower Persia, they start fighting against him. And so he was delayed for three weeks. And then he was finally able to overcome them when Michael the archangel came to his aid. Michael who looks over God's people and then now he can come and bring him the message. Now he can come bring him the vision. I mean, this is kind of crazy what this angel is saying. He's saying, uh, look, God has a plan. He sent me to bring you this message. But the plan got delayed. But the delay of the plan was also part of God's plan too. You remember those uh, nine hopeless things that I threw up here? Hopelessness, nine levels of hopelessness. What they don't mention is the spiritual dimension that we also face, right? So, so we have conflicts in our lives. We have difficulties in our lives. And you know what? Then you come to church and we say, you know what? There is a spiritual dimension to this too. There's supernatural warfare that's happening. You have an enemy of your soul, Satan, and he has minions, demons, And they want to stop you from knowing Christ. They want to stop you from having hope. They want to stop you from sharing the love of Christ in this world and for fulfilling the purpose God has put you on this world for. Well, that's not encouraging, is it? Right? That's like if you're drowning in life, right? You have all of this stress, all of this conflict, divisions and hatreds and financial issue and stress and not enough sleep. And then someone's like, and you're like, help, I need help. I'm drowning in the middle of the ocean. And they're like, yes, and there's also spiritual warfare. Here, take a sword. And you grab the sword. (laughs) And you sink to the bottom of the ocean. This doesn't encourage Daniel. What happens after we endure all of this supernatural and physical conflict? Does it all just end in misery? The vision Daniel's giving is not very encouraging. In chapter 11, starting in verse 3, he starts to give him this vision, and it is a vision of of the conflict that is 
is happening, and it's a vision about the future. And we've seen this in Daniel. After Persia, and yes, Persia is the country that sends the Jewish people back to Jerusalem. However, as we just saw here, they are supernaturally empowered, Persia, and they're not supernaturally empowered by God. They're supernaturally empowered by the enemies of God. So they're not a great kingdom. And so what we see is after Persia, Greece comes, and after Greece, Greece is divided into four parts. That's where we take up the vision. Verse 3, then a mighty king shall arise who shall rule with great dominion and do as he wills. That's Alexander the Great. And as soon as he has arisen, his kingdom shall be broken and divided toward the four winds of heaven, but not to his posterity, not according to the authority with which he ruled. For his kingdom shall be plucked up and go to others beside these. And so we find out that that's, that's exactly what happened. In fact, this section of Daniel, you can have one finger in the Bible and one finger in history book, and it tracks exactly what happened. Alexander the Great came up. He was the king of Greece. He overtook the known world at incredible speed. And just as he finally solidified his power, he died. And his power got divided into four. Four kingdoms. And so the rest of this prophecy, what we see is we see there's a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom, so two of these four kingdoms, and they fight over Jerusalem. Jerusalem keeps getting passed back and forth, back and forth from the northern kingdom that has the Seleucids and the southern kingdom which has the Ptolemies. This, these kingdoms keep fighting over Jerusalem, keep fighting over God's people, and they are absolutely helpless. They are powerless as they are just pawns in every fight, every struggle, every battle that they have. It's terrible to feel powerless, isn't it? Do you guys ever feel powerless? I know I have. That's what Israel is going to face. The angel is telling Daniel. This is the vision Daniel gets. Yeah, in the the future, God's people, they're just going to be powerless. As there is a struggle between the northern and the southern kingdom, they're going to fight and fight and fight, and there's nothing you can do. I know... As I've continually told you, I am a kingdom-minded believer, and so I think the church's position is to be above politics, left, right, Democrat, Republican, and that the church needs to have a prophetic voice and to be able to speak God's truth and not beholden to any political party or entity in this country or any other country. I think that's biblical. However, I am a good citizen, and so I am incredibly politically engaged and understand what's going on. And there have been times... Where, uh, where I'm watching, you know, a big election come in, and I'm sure you've watched an election come in, and you know who the right person for the job is, right? You're smart. You're smarter than the average American. You know who the right person is. And then as you stay up late at night and you watch all the election returns come in, all the way through California, you realize that most of America is not as smart as you <laughs> because the wrong person was elected. I don't know about you, but man, I, like, it feels like a gut punch, doesn't it? Like, you're just like, oh, you got to be kidding me. It's so hard. And I can wake up the next morning, and it's just, you're the, just like, ugh, the hopelessness that you feel. Like, ah, oh, my goodness, what? It's just terrible. Powerlessness. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? You know, I have friends who are like, we're going to do something. Like, what are you going to do? You got one vote. You got one vote, and there's millions of people who also have one vote. <laughs> we got to do something. Yeah, you did it, and it was one vote, right? A drop in the ocean. Come on. 
You feel powerless, there's nothing you can do. Or you felt powerless before. If you're working for an organization and they decide to reorganize and maybe your job isn't, isn't uh, required anymore, so you just get shoved out of the way. Or maybe they reorganize and you get a new job that you don't want and that you hate and pays less. I remember I was working for an organization once where I got two pay cuts within six months. Not because of anything I did, but because the organization was mismanaging their money. And so, well, we got to cut somewhere, so just chop it off 10%, chop it off 10%. And you know what? It happened right after my wife and I had put a down payment for our first house. Like, literally, we put the, and they all knew, the leadership all knew that we were doing that. We put the down payment for the house that evening. They called us into a meeting. We're cutting your, your salary 10%. Are you kidding me? <laughs> right once we got past the point of where, you know, we could get our deposit back, right? It was like, ah. Oh. You feel powerless. It's not good. Or maybe, maybe some of you, you know, were kids and your parents were getting a divorce. You feel powerless there, don't you? Or maybe you're a spouse who's, whose spouse, you know, just sent you divorce papers. You don't want to get divorced, but there's nothing you can do. Or maybe you were the, the spouse who had to serve divorce papers because you couldn't, you couldn't tolerate the abuse that was happening anymore. You didn't want this to happen, but you had to hold them accountable, and they weren't being held accountable, so it's just, it's the end. You feel powerless. I wish I could do something. I wish you would change, but you won't. Being powerless is terrible. What happens after we've endured all of this conflict and more? What happens after all of this? Does it all end in misery? And it gets worse. Not only is Israel passed back and forth between the northern and the southern kingdom, but it gets worse. There's someone from the Seleucids, Antiochus IV, who rises up. Verse 21 of chapter 11 says, In his place shall arise a contemptible person to whom royal majesty has not been given. He shall come in without warning and obtain the kingdom by flatteries. So he comes in and he takes over Jerusalem. Armies shall be utterly swept away before him and broken, even the prince of the covenant. And then jump forward to verse 31. Forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and fortress and shall take away the regular burnt offering and they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. He shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant, but the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. And the wise among the people shall make many understand, though for some days they shall stumble by sword and flame, by captivity and plunder. When they stumble, they shall receive a little help. They shall receive a little help, and many shall join themselves to them with flattery. And some of the wise shall stumble, so that they may be refined, purified, and made white until the time of the end, for it still awaits the appointed time. So this is, as we, again, we still have one finger in the history book and one finger in the Bible. This is Antiochus IV from the Seleucids. He came and took over Jerusalem. He saw that the Jewish people did not give in to his rule. And so what he did is he marched into the temple of Jerusalem, which made it unclean because Gentiles, non-Jewish people, people who did not acknowledge the one true God, Yahweh, Adonai. We're not allowed in the temple. He walked into the temple, defiled it by walking in. He brought an idol to Zeus, defiled the temple by bringing in an idol to Zeus. He set up an altar and defiled the temple again by having swine, an unclean animal, sacrificed in the altar before Zeus. 
You imagine, like we talked about this before, but imagine if you're, like we talked about with, with uh, COVID shutting down churches, and we're like, oh man, will the church survive? Okay, but for a period of six years, there's no worship going on in Israel because of what Antiochus IV did. The Apostle John, in, in 1 John 2, he talks about the spirit of the Antichrist always being alive in every age, always in the wings, waiting to attack. This is the spirit of the Antichrist. This is someone against the people of God and God himself. It's terrible. It's awful. Utterly powerless. What are we going to do? There's nothing you can do. There's nothing you can do. You're powerless. Now, what's interesting is up until this point in the text, the prophecy follows perfectly with, with what happened historically. After this verse is where the prophecy fails. It's where the prophecy fails. Uh, and by fails, I mean you can have one finger in the history book, and then when you get to this next part, it all falls apart. You're like, no, no, this, didn't, this isn't what happened here in the history. And so uh, certain scholars will say, ha-ha. So what happened was the person who wrote the book of Daniel actually wrote it way in the future of Daniel's time, and they were just looking back at the historical events that occurred, and they just wrote them all down. And then at this point, they just started making stuff up, and that's how we can date the book and know how, how old the book is. Okay, that's what some scholars will say. But that's not the case, right? There's a lot of good evidence that Daniel actually wrote this about 500 years before Christ. There's a lot of good evidence uh, internally and externally towards that end. But what I think happens is Daniel is given uh, what I call a, a telescoping effect. You know what a telescope is. You've seen a collapsing telescope, right? right? You have it here and then and it opens up. Well, Daniel is given a vision of the future, Right, if you take someone from 200 years ago and you show them a car and a cell phone and say, what's the, dif the distance between these two inventions? They're not going to know. They're going to say about three seconds because they're given a vision of the future. Right? What's the, the distance between the first airplane and the first uh, rocket launch, which I think was only 50 years. That's incredible. Uh, right? but, but they're not going to know because it's telescoping into the future. And that's what prophecy does. And in fact, I think the fact that the prophecy fails is a good sign that this is actually Daniel who wrote this. Because if people were just trying to make it up, they wouldn't have started, or if they were just trying to record uh, uh, past events as future prophecy, they wouldn't have like been like, all right, now, let's just make some stuff up here. No, they wouldn't do that. They would just, they, they would just stop there where they knew everything stopped. Why would they continue on? No, Daniel, he's given a, a vision. Even further into the future here is what happens. Verse 36, and the king shall do as he wills. He shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god and shall speak astonishing things against the god of gods. He shall prosper till the indignation is accomplished for what is decreed shall be done. So it jumps forward. And this is, it's no longer Antiochus IV, but this is the same spirit of the Antichrist who is fighting against God and fighting against God's people. Jump over to verse 44. He continues to put himself up as God, this, this leader, this ruler, this antichrist. He puts himself up as God, and he's above God, and he should be worshipped as God. But in verse 44, but news from the east and the north shall alarm him, and he, he shall go out with great fury to destroy and devote many to destruction. So it doesn't get better. It gets worse. It's such a time that uh, all the conflicts come to a point, and it is awful, and he devotes many to destruction. There are thousands and thousands, millions who die. What is the point of all this conflict? 
What happens at the end of all of this conflict? Can you imagine the stress that Daniel's given? Oh, there's an angel. An angel, oh, I'm going to give you this vision. While Christ, in, in his terrifying glory, is hovering over the face of the water. And he's not comforted. It's all conflict. It's all darkness. It's all misery. A number of years ago, I don't have like, you know, broadcast TV that I really watch anymore because I'm an old millennial, so everything's streaming now. It's like commercials, what's that? But I remember a number of years ago, this is probably going back, eh, let's say uh, 10, 10, 11 years ago, uh, we, we still did watch TV with commercials, and they would have all these, these drug commercials, right? About, and, and they would talk about the, uh, the negative side effects of all the drugs. And so the one that I always was amused by was antidepressants. Right? So, oh, you see the antidepressant. And, um, and I remember I was talking with a pharmacist friend and, uh, from church, and we were talking about this, and she was, uh, I, you know, I, I decided, oh, I'll, I'll roll out my best comedy stuff. And I said, I don't get these antidepressants, right? They're like, oh, it's supposed to make you antidepressed, and yet you take the antidepressant, and they say one of the side effects is suicide. And if you feel suicidal thoughts to contact someone immediately, I'm like, ha, 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 it's not doing anything. And she got serious, and she said, no, you don't understand. See what happens is this is where you want people. This is where they commit suicide in their depression. And this is where they are right now. They are severely depressed. They are so depressed, they have no energy to do anything. People start taking the antidepressants, right? And it starts to change the brain chemistry and get it back to a healthy place, right? But as the people start coming up, as the depression is waning, they're still in depression, Right? But it's coming up, it's coming up, and now they have an energy level. They have a higher energy level. They get to the point where they have an energy level where they could actually kill themselves. And the, she said the trick is you have to kind of launch them past that point, right? And then get them above. And I was like, oh my goodness, right? A stupid little joke that I made. No, that's, that's a real thing, right? So, okay, so they finally, you got to get them past that point. Fast forward to a few years ago. With uh, COVID-19, I, uh, I was talking with a bunch of colleagues and some uh, medical professionals, and all, everyone was saying when, when it first hit, like, man, there's going to be so much suicide this year. There's going to be so much suicide this year. People are going to take their lives. People are going to take their lives. People are going to take their lives. And, uh, and I think we quickly came to the consensus. It's the same thing. We said, no, no, no. People are in the middle of tragedy. They're in the middle of hardship. They're in the m- absolute dregs with the shutdowns, the lockdowns, the divisions over, over masks and over injections and over shutdowns, like all, all the, and the political stuff, all the stuff that was happening, we are in the dregs right now. And the consensus of that group said, you know what we're going to see is after the major wave of this passes, that's when we're going to see the energy level come up and that's when we're going to see the suicides. And in 2022, last year, the CDC just said, it's the most suicides that have happened in all of American history. 50,000 Americans died by suicide last year. I'm not a psychologist. I have, and there are still lots of studies about what, what factors cause suicides. They still don't understand. I have a working theory that people commit suicide when they're absolutely overwhelmed. They're overwhelmed by depression. They're overwhelmed by finances. They're overwhelmed with too much work. They're overwhelmed with too little work. They're overwhelmed with relational strife. They're overwhelmed with alienation. 
And you imagine how overwhelmed Daniel here, and I imagine how overwhelmed some of us are right now in this day and age with the division that's happening, with the broken, fractured relationship, with inflation and the financial strains that we have, with directionlessness, with, with, with relational breakage. I mean, divorce is also up high there. I can't tell you. There was a point also in 2021 and 2022, I had eight people simultaneously that I knew and loved in my life getting a divorce? That doesn't happen. There's so much strife. There's so much darkness. What is the point of all of this conflict? What happens after the end of all this conflict? Does it all end in misery? It must. It must all end in misery. We die in misery. Why bother? Except it doesn't all end misery. It doesn't all end in darkness. It doesn't all end in hopelessness. Finally, Daniel is given a vision. Verse 45 of chapter 11, it says, and he, this is the Antichrist figure, he shall pitch his palatial tents between the sea and the glorious holy mountain, yet he shall come to his end with none to help him. Just like that, when life is at its worth, Worst, God acts. Chapter 12, verse 1. At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who has charge of your people, and there shall be a time of trouble such as never has been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above. And those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro and knowledge shall increase. So, so as things get absolutely bad, God comes in. He doesn't give them the details, but God comes in and he makes final conclusion to evil. And then he says, and we get this fuller in, in Revelation, but then is the resurrection of the dead. So it doesn't all end in death. At some point, at the end of days, when King Jesus comes back, everyone shall be resurrected from the dead, good and evil. We shall be given glorified, perfected bodies. Good and evil people. Because we were made to live forever. But Daniel says, and the angel tells Daniel, those who are in the book, the book of life, those will rise to eternal life. And those who are not in the book of life will go into eternal contempt, separation from God, eternal misery. How can we know that we are written in that book of life? How can we be saved? It tells us here in the next section. Verse 5. Then I, Daniel, looked, and behold, two others stood, one on this bank of the stream and one on that bank of the stream. And someone said to the man clothed in linen, who was above the waters of the stream. So, so the image, he, he now looks, he's seen the vision, and now he's back seeing this. So there's like a flashback, right, or a flash forward. And now he's, he's back on the banks of the Tigris River. There's one man on this side, one man on that side. I imagine Gabriel, Michael, and in the middle, still hovering over the face of the water is the glorified, terrifying Jesus. One on that bank of the stream. Verse 6, And someone said to the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the stream, 
How long shall it be till the end of these wonders? And I heard the man clothed in linen, who was above the waters of the stream. He raised his right hand and his left hand toward heaven and swore by him who lives forever that it would be for a time, times, and half a time. And that when the shattering of the power of the holy people comes to an end, all these things would be finished. I know there's been a lot of scholars saying, how long is that? Times, times, and half a time. What is that? A millennium and a half? Two and a half millennials? Is that what it is going to be? No. (laughs) This is what happens like as parents when your kids are saying, are we there yet? Yes, we're almost there. How long? Soon. (laughs) right? Or or you give your kid a timeout because they need a timeout. You say, okay, go sit in that chair. How long do I have to stay there until I tell you to, (laughs) until I tell you to can get up? Or go clean your room. For how long? Just go clean your room. For how long do I have to do the whole thing myself? No, just continue to do what you're supposed to do, and I'll let you know when you can stop, right? God is saying here, Jesus is saying, second person of the Trinity is saying, I have a plan, and you don't need to know it. You just keep being faithful and do what I tell you to do. You just keep following after God and do what you're supposed to do. Verse 7, or excuse me, verse uh, 8. I heard, but I did not understand. Then I said, oh my Lord, what shall be the outcome of these things? He said, go your way, Daniel, for the words are shut up and sealed until the end of time. By the way, that shut up and sealed thing Once in a while, you'll find someone who says, oh, there's secret prophecy somewhere that we have to find and uncover through whatever. There's a secret book out there. That's not what it is. It misunderstands the context of here. He's shut up and seal. He was told to shut up and seal the book, meaning make copies and put it in Tupperware so it doesn't fade and doesn't spoil, okay? So that people can look at this from generation to generation and read this. This is the prophecy that he told them to shut up and steal that we're reading this now. So if you ever come across someone who says, oh, I found the secret, or we're going to find the secret of prophecies of Daniel, like either they're mistaken or they're a heretic and they're trying to lead you astray, okay? So don't, don't fall for them. There is no secret prophecy of Daniel. There's no point to revelation. Revelation literally means God revealing himself. He doesn't reveal himself only to hide it away. We learned that in Sunday school, right? Hide it under a bushel. No, I'm going to let it shine, okay? So, so he says, shut up and seal it, meaning preserve it so it can be read. Verse 10, many shall purify themselves and make themselves white and be refined. How do we do that? We understand that from the New Testament. It is by trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. But the wicked shall act wickedly, and none of the wicked shall understand. But those who are wise shall understand. Verse 11, and from the time that the regular burnt offering is taken away and the abomination that makes desolation is set up, there shall be 1,290 days. Blessed is he who waits and arrives at the 1,335th day. But go your way till the end, and you shall rest, and you shall stand in your allotted place at the end of the days. He tells Daniel, Daniel, faithful Daniel, not perfect, but faithful Daniel. Daniel, who has been utterly faithful to God, go your way. You continue. You're not going to know about anything that comes down the way. You're not going to be able to affect the prophecy. You don't have any power in the world. But you know what? You go your way. You continue to be faithful to God. And he will make it right. And on that last day, When you see this terrifying one appear in the clouds with glory, you will stand confident in his power. You will rise to eternal life. The wicked are going to continue to do what the wicked do. Those who want nothing to do with God will continue to want nothing to do with God. But you, Daniel, you go on your own way. 
What happens after all of this, after we've endured all of this terrible conflict in our lives? After we've endured all this terrible conflict, what's going on out there and what's going on in here, after we've endured all of this, those who have been faithful to Jesus will rise to eternal life. That's our hope. It doesn't all end in misery for those who are in Christ, for those who have trusted in his name, for those who have believed he died on the cross, shed his blood for us, and rose again. It does not all end in death. It does not all end in misery. It ends in life. It ends in hope. We have an eternal hope that can't be perished, that won't perish, it won't be spoiled, it won't fade away. Look, church, you have reasons to be utterly miserable. We do. I know, I haven't been here for that long, but you do have reasons to be utterly miserable. Look at inflation. It's incredible. Look at the cost of food. It's rough. Everything is going up. It's hard. You have reasons to be miserable. We all have struggle with, with issues. Personally, we have physical issues. I've got an arm brace over here because the baby keeps popping out my you know, tennis elbow thing. It's in pain. I'm in pain all the time, right? Some of us have, have mental health issues, which are the same, similar to, to physical issues that you have going on. There's sickness and disease. Some of you are sick with chronic illness. Worse yet, you have loved ones who have chronic illnesses, and they're not getting better and you watch them fade away and you watch them hurt and you watch them in pain and you want them to take it all away and you can't. There are so many reasons to be miserable. Look at what's happening in, in our country right now, how divided people are. For crying out loud, there are families who divide over politics. There are families who divide over politicians who don't know their name, won't grieve their loss, won't come to their weddings, won't celebrate their birthdays, and yet we choose to divide over people who don't even know our names. There's so much hatred out there. There's so much darkness. There's so much exhaustion. People are utterly exhausted. And like I said, the suicide rate is high. It'll be horrifying to see what the 2023 rates are. We have all the reasons in the world to be miserable. And many of us, we only have one reason to have hope. One. But that one reason is more powerful that one reason is brighter. That one reason is more hopeful. That more reason is stronger than all of our miseries put together. We have one reason and one reason only to be hopeful about the future, and that reason is Jesus Christ who was and is and will come again. If you have placed your faith in him, if you have trusted in him, God's grace has come and he has transformed you. The Apostle Paul said that our present suffering is not worth comparing to all the future glory that we have in Christ Jesus. As horrible as life is, the abuse you've gone through, the struggles and the difficulties, Paul says when you see Jesus face to face, when you receive your inheritance in the kingdom of God, all the pain, all the anguish, all the tears, all the hardship, all the hatred and anger you face won't be worth comparing. You won't even bother remembering it in the light of his glory and grace. When he's accepted you and said, well done, good and faithful servant. The apostle Paul said, Jesus has gone before us and he has given us an inheritance. Those of us who've trusted in Jesus, he's given us an inheritance in the new heaven and new earth that cannot perish, cannot fade, cannot be taken away. Inflation isn't going to destroy it. Political divisions aren't going aren't to matter, aren't going to squash it. You have hope, believer. 
You have a good future ahead of you. Yes, all of our miseries are terrible and awful, and yet we have reason for hope. We only have one reason, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. Because of him, he says, no matter how bad it gets, no matter who's in charge, no matter how bad and malicious the king is, or the president, or a senator, or anything else, there is a God in heaven who is powerful. There's a God in heaven who is in charge. And whatever situation we find ourselves in, you choose to be faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ until the end. And then at the end of days, King Jesus will come and he will resurrect us from the dead. He will give us a glorified, perfected body and things will be the way they ought to be, not the way they currently are. Your conflicts that you're facing, your struggles, your difficulty. After you've gone through all of that, if you have trusted in Jesus, you will be raised to eternal life. And Jesus himself will wipe away every tear. No matter what's happening in this world around us, no matter how miserable we are, be like faithful Daniel. Follow after Christ. Go on your way. Let's pray. Father, I pray for us as a congregation. I pray that we are, we are such a hurting, struggling people. There are so many miseries in, in our lives right now, and, and studies show that it affects people in churches as well as, as people outside of the church. Give us renewed vision of the Lord Jesus Christ. May our hope be found in him. May we realize no matter how dark it gets, we have an eternal hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. He loves us through him. We've been adopted into your family. You call us sons and daughters. Though the times right now are dark and though they're difficult and though we have many struggles, here we are together. You've brought us together. You bought us by the blood of Jesus Christ. You raised us up in his resurrection power. You've given us the Holy Spirit as a down payment of the future inheritance we have in Jesus that cannot be taken away. We have reason to be hopeful. May we take that hope and share it with a world that has no hope, that sees such misery, that thinks it all ends in darkness and sorrow. And may we be continually a people of hope, even as we cry tears of pain in this life. Give us a vision of the life beyond. Help us to be faithful to you, even in the hardships that we face. And help us to support each other in the midst of these hardships, knowing that when two or more are gathered, there you are also. I pray, Lord, help us to be faithful. Help us to follow Jesus and to find hope in him. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to learn more about the church or make an online donation, please visit us at fbctarrytown.org.